0: Welcome to Season 2 of Oto Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is Season 2, Episode 5, The Otolaryngology Clinician Scientist. My guest today is Dr. Sam Goobels. He graduated from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, then attended otolaryngology residency at the Oregon Health and Science University. He completed a neurotology fellowship at the University of Iowa and practiced at the University of Wisconsin before joining our faculty at the University of Colorado in 2016. In addition to treating patients with hearing loss, balance disorders, and diseases of the skull base, Dr. Googles runs a research program focused on evaluating stem cells as a means to better understand and treat hearing loss in humans. He enjoys spending time with his wife, who is also a physician, and his twin 11-year-old sons. Thanks for being on the show, Sam.
1: Thank you, Christina, and thanks for doing this.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you decide to do otolaryngology as a specialty?
1: I think pretty standard. Nothing. I didn't have any things too unique, but my wife's best friend was an otolaryngology trainee at the time when I was a medical student. And so I think, you know, in second year of med school, and then in third year, I became more aware of the fields. And then did sub eyes obviously in fourth year and tried to get some experience in third year. Where I went to med school, we didn't have a department. So I had to kind of go out into private practice with some local otolaryngologists and get a sampling of things there and then travel with sub eyes. So That was how I learned about the field. I hadn't had any previous contact with the field research or as a patient or anything like that. So it was a field I didn't know much about, but then as I learned about it, I knew I wanted to do something procedural, but didn't really know what. I think I was thinking of interventional cardiology and some other things as well, but I knew I wanted to do something something procedural. And then it was, I think, learning about the age range that we treat, you know, that it's across the age spectrum, and both medical and surgical. I do remember liking that you can still be doing some procedures in clinic scoping people and using microscopes and minor procedures in clinics. So it kept it a little more interesting than what the experience that I'd had with some other clinics like internal medicine and so forth. So that's probably a pretty, I imagine, a pretty standard for how people get interested in otolaryngology, nothing unusual there.
0: Yeah, but you had the added uh, difficulty of not having a department. That makes it trickier.
1: That does make it trickier. It puts the onus on them to be resourceful in their local area and some otolaryngologists that may be in other practices that aren't affiliated with an institution may or may not be amenable to having a med student rotate through. But on the whole, I think everybody likes to have somebody interested come and spend time with them as a med student. And so I think for medical students out there who are in that situation, as long as they're proactive and resourceful and identifying people in their community uh, and potentially traveling it where they wherever they might need to get additional experience and exposure to the field, it's a challenge, but certainly it's one that you can overcome.
0: And then when did you decide you wanted to be a clinician scientist? Was that something you were thinking about even before
1: residency or was that during residency? No, I, I think it was, I'd had some basic science experience when I was uh, an undergraduate for a number of years working in a lab, a vascular surgery lab. And I did a little bit more, but not too much as a med student, as I, as I was the same institution for med school and undergraduate. And then as a resident I knew I wanted to do a fellowship and I'd had some basic science research as I mentioned but really hadn't done much during residency the I did a my, my research rotation was a translational project that I did and got a core grant resident research grant that I was lucky enough to get and then I did not match in neurotology my first application that was back in the day where there were five or six programs one year and then 12 the next. And I was applying in an off year. I interviewed at all of them, but didn't get a spot. So that was very disappointing, but I reapplied. And then I made a plan for the year that I would do a research fellowship where I stayed at at Oregon Hearing Research Center and I worked with Dr. John Brigandi, who had a a lab focusing on inner ear development and was also focused on regeneration, which was, had developed as an interest of mine during residency. I was just fascinated with that field. So I did a one-year research fellowship. I was able to secure some funding to support that from the AOS with a, with a grant from the Otological Society. And so That helped a lot. And then I stayed on kind of as an instructor level in the department and worked at the VA, but only like a half day a week. And so that gave me more, a more substantive experience as far as science goes. And then I went to my fellowship at University of Iowa and continued doing some of the techniques that I had learned and continued with my interest. And luckily enough, I crossed paths with one of my mentors was Marlon Hanson and also Richard Smith and richard as you know is a prolific clinician scientist both of them are prolific clinician scientists and so i was in a rich environment for it where i had good role models and so i, I started working more with richard because he was interested in a technique that i had learned in that one year research fellowship and was able to had enough re, we didn't have a ton of research time but had enough and carved out enough time this is before i had kids so that I had a lot of weekends and evenings working in his lab to get this technique up and running and working with some of his trainees. And so I think it was after that experience during my fellowship really, that I started thinking that maybe when I take my first faculty position, I wanted to go down that road, very aware that it's plagued with lots of difficulties and challenges and that there's a significant chance that I won't make it just because getting funding's tough. It's just a, it, there are challenges. It's doable. It's navigable with good mentorship. But I, I, I went into it very, I think, very aware that this was something that, you know, who knows where it's all headed, but I wanted to try. So that was kind of my attitude as I went through it. But to get back to your question, I would say it was really not until fellowship when I had good role models that I started seeing that, you know, maybe that is a seeing that I maybe wanted to contribute on that level in addition to clinically.
0: So yeah, you alluded to the difficulties of doing bench research. So compared to someone who does only clinical research or no research at all, what are the pressures associated with running a basic science lab?
1: Well, I think you're more likely that you're going to be managing a research team. And so I found myself wholly unequipped to manage people. And it's still not one of my favorite parts of being a clinician scientist as far as managing a lab. I think that's one of the challenges, if you're doing clinical research, you don't typically, you're you're working with others, but you don't typically, you're not applying for funding and managing that money, which means personnel management. So I think that was one of the challenges that you see with a basic or translational if you're, as a clinician scientist going down that road. And then funding is, you know, the, the always... Big challenge for this. It's different if you're doing clinical research, you typically don't need bigger funding, more substantive funding. But if you're trying to run a basic or translational research program, and particularly if you've hired people on to in that, in the interest of that, then obviously you need more significant funding. And so, grant writing, learning how to take rejection and feedback, and collaborations. And I think all those lessons are challenges that you have to work through in the first few years of your career as a clinician scientist.
0: Yeah. Tell me more about the funding. So how do you manage that? How has that changed over the years with the funding changes nationally?
1: Well, I think there's some level of fluctuation of it as far as how challenging things are. It's always hard to get research funding. I don't think it's ever easy, but I was very fortunate, just really lucky with timing on a lot of the funding that I got. I was in the right place at the right time to put in an application and I was being opportunistic, I think. I had good science and ideas to go through it, but I think for everybody, there's a certain element of luck in when the funding opportunity comes through who your grant ends up in front of and the sort of feedback you get the timeliness of the research questions you're asking for the field so some of these things you can control and some of them aren't in your control so um, funding i don't think it's got any easier it's always challenging and i think arguably it's gotten harder over time for a number of reasons i think for clinician scientists are clinical metrics and demands are probably more significant now than they might have been in the past. I don't know that for sure, but certainly we're expected to be clinically productive and today's healthcare environment kind of demands that. So, and sometimes doesn't care as much about, you know, the, that you have other basic or translational pursuits. So you definitely have to advocate for yourself in that regard, but funding is always, always challenging. I had a, my funding, History was, again, a resident research grant from the academy, which is really great for lots of reasons, getting experience grant writing. It's a very high-level review it goes through. And then I got uh, the AOS grant to help me through that one research fellowship. When I got my first faculty position, I was able to get a K award within a few, few years. I didn't get one directly from the NIH, but it was one from a CTSA which many campuses have. And for those who don't know what that is, that's a large grant that an institution, I think they're on the order of $40 million. And I I don't know if it's a five year time period for that. I think that that's about right, but an institution will apply for one of those. And then that gives that institution money that they can, break up and give to groups of clinicians, scientists or whoever, whatever they're choosing is actually for training awards, like K series awards, or for more pilot research funding to get people's ideas off the ground and help them launch their careers. So obviously I benefited from it. So I'm, I'm biased, but I think that was very formative and extremely helpful at a really critical time. Your first five years when you come out is really a critical and challenging time for a clinician scientist. And those grants really help a lot to protect your time and give you some research funding to work with. And then I was lucky enough to get an an RO3. We don't have that award anymore at NIDCD, but uh, it was a pretty substantive award at the time. So again, there, I think I was kind of had some of the right ideas at, at a time that that institute was looking to build out that area of research. And then after my R3, I was lucky enough to apply in, in response to a request for applications in regenerative therapies. And so I was applying at a time that obviously they were seeking these type of applications and fortuitously was able to get it to get it funded. So that's a very long-winded answer. But you know, grant funding is always one of the major challenges there. It's definitely manageable, but I made a a fair number of mistakes along the way, as I'm sure everybody did. But especially in the first few years, I really made some major errors that when I look back at it.
0: So how did you decide on your niche? So you were doing this research, it sounds like, in fellowship. And then how did you tailor that to what you were applying for as far as funding and, and what kind of research you're doing?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. The, my interest was piqued in this area because uh, just what the reading of articles that I was doing as a resident, I'd always thought the general area of hair cell regeneration was fascinating to me. And then when I was did my research fellowship, one of the lessons I always tell when I'm mentoring junior faculty or other of our trainees who want to pursue a pathway as a, as a clinician scientist is that you need to have an area of research interest. And yeah, number one, you have to be fascinated by it and be passionate on some level about it because otherwise there's not a whole lot of reason to do it, if you ask me. Um, but if you, you got to have that area of research interest. But depending on where you end up, particularly with your first position, it needs to be malleable. And the reason is that you need to have really good mentors early on. And your mentor needs to be fundamentally interested in what you're doing. And if you come in and you have your research interest, but it's not utilizing perhaps a technique that your mentor finds interesting or the general area is just kind of a miss for what their skill set is. And and also just at the institution, you end up, some institutions have certain areas that they've built out. I was lucky enough, University of Wisconsin, they have a very robust STEM cell research environment and group there. there's It's diverse. They're, they're well known for it. And so there was a very rich environment for doing stem cell research. I'd done more gene delivery, gene therapy research to that point, but I'd always had my finger on the pulse a little bit of what was happening with regeneration as focused on stem cells and hair cell regeneration. And so when I went to Wisconsin, one of my first mentors, and I went into his lab, though I floated the idea of continuing with some gene therapy type of research, he said, well, what do you think about stem cells? And so, you know, you need to, my, my interests need needed to be a little malleable as far as what, you know, not just strictly focused on one specific question, because again, you need to be able to draw on local resources when you're at an institution and some of those being your mentor, some of them being other things that that institution may possess that's unique. So it's fluid, and you need to be able to, again, your niche, you, I won't say you fall into it, but you need to remain open-minded with, and, and so a lot of times people will have multiple areas that they go in, and that's probably a good thing, multiple areas that you're fascinated by, maybe all focused on one general theme, but then depending on where you are, you can kind of select a certain area that is going to be yours. It can't be too much like your mentors, because then you'll be criticized in your grants that it's not different enough, but yet it needs to be kind of similar enough that they're engaged with what you're doing. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. So in that vein, when you're coming up with new hypotheses, new projects, does that happen pretty naturally or is that more difficult? Like when you have a certain project that you're working on, does the next project kind of organically evolve from that one?
1: I imagine that's kind of different for different investigators' experiences. Mine has been that it does, that it it happens, you know. I love the discovery part of science. And I think to really, in earnest, kind of try to work towards being a clinician scientist, you have to have that kind of love of discovery. So, so something new, I kind of remember some key moments where we'd seen new things and it was so exciting. And I think with the discovery, your mind runs wild as far as, oh my gosh, what does that mean? And all these other questions open up. And so I feel like I've been pretty lucky in that one thing has led to another as far as my research interests and then the grants that I put in and so forth. That said, I definitely have had mentors and colleagues who I know you know, are very focused in one area of research for a long time. And then they very deliberately established a, a different direction for one part of their lab. Great example of that is Richard Smith. with He'd done always genetics of hearing loss, but then due to various factors, he became interested in kidney disease and then very deliberately built out his research program to also involve the genetics of kidney disease. And so I think, again, a lot of times one thing follows on from another, but then there's sometimes where people will say, I'm going to just read something interesting. I'm going to take something in a whole new direction and see if I can get funding for it.
0: Yeah. So what is your typical weekly schedule look like?
1: I find that there's a lot of seasonal variation with neurotology. I don't know if you find that as well. What I mean is the end of the year always gets really busy clinically and I mean, pretty much from October through December, and then even January, February, I'm pulled more in the clinical direction for sure. And so there I may be four days a week doing clinical things and one day research. But then I find also that after we get through a bunch of meetings in March and April, usually the summer, the late spring, summer and early fall are times I can swing back and really spend more time with the science and in over in my lab. So, you know, on average, I would say I, end, I have a day and a half per week of clinic. I have about a day and a half per week of OR with an asterisk next to it. And then the remainder of the time I'm able to dedicate for lab research in addition to, you know, whatever weekend and evening, you know, if there's deadlines, I'm definitely spending more time on, on the weekends and evenings, but I try not to. So that's on average, I think, what things look like with the caveat that I've, I've found a lot of seasonal variation with my practice that I need to just attend to. And the other aspect I think is with vestibular schwannoma surgery. There's times where we're just extremely busy with that, and there's times where it's not quite so busy. So sometimes parts of my research days, I'll have to go do part of those cases and things like that. So again, with, with just kind of ebbs and flows through the year.
0: Yeah, I, I find some of that too at the end of the year, especially because deductibles for health plans are coming up. So people want to get their surgeries in before December 31st, usually. Yeah. In your lab specifically, who helps you with your research? Do you have research assistance? Do you mostly use residents since you're part of a residency training program? How does that work?
1: I have not actually had any residents. I have one coming up as part of our T32 grant for a two-year period starting this summer, which I'm really looking forward to. I've had other trainees that one was a pre-doctoral student, an AUD PhD when I was at Wisconsin. Here I had a Japanese trainee who was doing essentially a postdoc, but he is an MD PhD and was finishing up his PhD, part of his training, which they actually do more in residency, interestingly. So Um, He was through for about three years and highly productive. We don't have access to undergraduates currently. Well, not easy access to undergraduates here, whereas at Wisconsin, there were a lot of undergraduate presence in my lab. So I really enjoyed that. And that was one thing with the move to Colorado that's very different is just there's not that presence given the outlay of our campus. I've always had a higher level manager or scientist in the lab. Currently, I have a, a scientist who is essentially runs the lab. She has some of her own research interests, but is essentially involved in all of our lab projects. And then depending on what, how funding is, I'm in a little bit of a lean time right now, but I had typically would have one or two other people in the lab. So the most I've ever had, I would say is probably six with maybe two or three being undergraduates. And the least is kind of right now with one or two people just because funding where things stand with my current grant funding i'm I'm being cautious to run things a little bit lean your your primary expenses in running a basic or translational lab are going to be salaries and so you know i kind of went into it thinking it was all the expense of the research but that's actually i found to be a minor part of things actually your animal care and other research goods that you need the majority of what you're paying your money for is for people's salaries so a lot of people do things different ways as far as how many trainees versus employees as far as having maybe a scientist or a, a, a research assistant in the lab. And you're going to have a, lots of different responses as to, I think it's just individual what works best for you. There's a thought out there that with a surgeon scientist that having somebody who's a little bit of a higher level trainee you know, just given the demands on your schedule clinically is helpful, but I've seen it done lots of different ways.
0: Okay. So if someone comes to you and says they're considering a clinician scientist career, what advice would you give them?
1: Well, I touched on on a lot of things I think in the course of this, but first and foremost you need to really I like to explore why they think they want to do that. It's very rewarding and I think it's really it's really unique, but it has its rigors and the bottom line is that that same time spent doing research you would probably make more money if you did all clinical work, just given salary caps on grant funding. It's like the administrative tasks that, as you know well, that we do, those are done out of your passion for other things because you could always use that same time and probably would be more lucrative just applied to clinical practice. But you also need to do the things that keep you engaged. And so, yeah, I would make sure that people know that and that you do really need to feel that you need to have discovery and science as part of what you're doing on a, you know, maybe not day to day, but week to week basis. That is something that in your soul that, you know, you feel like you need to have that as part of your career for your happiness and satisfaction in the long run that you can contribute on that level. So I also try to give them an idea of, some of what I've learned about funding and the mistakes that I made and see if they can, you know, help them and not make those same mistakes. But I would encourage them to do it. I think it's it's very rewarding. I think it's, it's a really unique thing that, that you can have in your life. But you have to have a thick skin. You're gonna get a lot of grants that are just rejected. One of the mistakes that I mentioned is in the first, I think, year or year and a half I applied for about 10 foundation grants, and they all have different formats. I was doing nothing but writing grants for like a year and a half, and I didn't get one of them. I, everything got rejected. That It was just one after another they kept getting. I would make it pretty far in the process, but they just weren't getting funded. And so looking back, I should have used that same time because I didn't have good data. That's why they weren't getting funded. And so if I had just kind of maybe spent some of the startup money that I'd had and got better data... Rather than spending all that time writing so many, what weren't huge grant awards to be going for, early on, I might have then had better data when I did do that later. So I don't know. I try to share those experiences whenever we have trainees or other people that are interested in going down that road.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's really helpful. So would you choose to become a clinician scientist again if you had to do it over?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm first and foremost a clinician and surgeon. I'm most passionate about that. I love the science indeed, but, you know, I was first and foremost attracted to medicine for the clinical aspect of things and then found that I also loved contributing scientifically as well. But yeah, I would absolutely do it over again. You know, being very aware that it's challenging and You can't get so invested in your sense of worth as a person, as a clinician scientist, that if the science component doesn't come together, you'll feel like you failed or something like that. It's it's very hard to do. It's navigable, but it's challenging to do. So I think it helps to just go into it with the attitude, understanding that I'm going to try and you're never going to know if you don't try at all. And if it doesn't work out, you always have a great career with being able to do clinical research and the clinical work that we're able to help patients with. So
0: So you have two boys, twin sons. If they come up to you, one or both of them, in 10 years and says, Dad, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I would encourage them to do it. I love our field. I love neurotology. I love the, the my clinical practice, I find is. It's so rewarding. I love what I'm able, what we're able to do to help people. I love the surgeries, just procedural aspect of things. So, I would want them to have that sort of satisfaction in their career. But you know, they, you also want to make sure people are going into it with pretty reasonable idea of what it's like down the road and so forth. But yeah, I would I would encourage them to. And you know, there's lots of lots of good career choices people can make. But I feel like we're lucky in otolaryngology as far as The sort of problems we're able to treat and just kind of the lifestyle we're able to have and the diversity of the field. I think it's it's an amazing field. And so I would definitely encourage them to do that if they wanted to.
0: Great. Well, thanks for being on the show. Is there anything that you want to add?
1: The only thing that I would add is for residents or junior faculty, or I suppose med student out there that might think that this is the road they want to go down, I think seeking as many opinions of people who've done it is really critical as you're contemplating this. So, you know, you can contact me. I think we're always willing to share their experience at a meeting or something. So I think it's really helpful to get a lot of people's, opinions and experience who've gone down the road and see the mistakes that they've made. So uh, that's the only parting thought I would have is just for anybody contemplating this, really try to network and communicate with people for, for many reasons. Number one, it helps your decision-making, but you're going to establish connections of with potential mentors and things like that. So you definitely need to uh, seek out lots of opinions.
0: Yeah, agree. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sam.
1: You're welcome. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Until next time, wishing you success and joy.